We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh, Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be my word. What a god. What are these Are we having fun yet? Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that. But of course, I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello, and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Insights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Howdy. So this week, uh, we're doing a little different, Simon. Uh, I'm currently in Peru, and we internet and particularly editing software and chaptering programs, uh, not as reliable uh, at in Cusco and in the uh, Andes Mountains. So we have pre-recorded a a long longer DVD shelf this week, and we got to talk with uh, Lindsay Wood actually from the Somerset Doctor Who podcast about Twin Peaks. So that'll be coming a little bit later. But I'm jealous of you, sir, because you got to talk to Adam Kempenar from Film Spotting and bringing in uh, a ringer for me to talk the girls finale. Yeah, it, it seemed important to me that we have a girl for when we're talking about girls. It seems it seems obvious, but kind of important. So she was the closest thing I had to another you around. <laughs> I mean, there's 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 no other Kate Culver. Like you're like the most tenacious podcaster in the universe, but still do. <laughs> really, really most tenacious in the universe. I don't really know what that means, but I'm gonna assume it's a compliment <laughs> and go from there because that seems to have a. Uh, Worked for me so far. Uh, so yeah, so it, it's funny due to the due to the magic of of the interwebs, you're not actually here right now. But dude, that's not. Do not peek behind the curtain. <laughs> so be, obviously, they can't see that uh, Simon is reaching out to me across the interwebs at this moment. But uh, but yeah. So so before we go to Twin Peaks, we're gonna listen to a little music and come back and uh, and you get you're gonna get to talk to to Adam and Justine. Uh, about girls. I, I did get to talk to him about Harry Potter uh, a while back, so <laughs> we're going to have to try to time this up better in the future. But I'm leaving the podcast in your capable hands, Simon, to edit and take care well, of Well, in my hands, anyway. <laughs> Hopefully you guys will enjoy the rest of the, the podcast and talking with Adam and Justine and girls and all of that good stuff. And I will chime in with my two cents on the girls' finale next week. But let's, let's uh, listen to some music and talk some girls. Well, you can talk some girls. Yes? Yes. Televerse, that was Azealia Banks with 212, which was one of several very dirty pop songs we got in the finale of Girls, entitled She Did. Now, Kate Kulzik is not with me right now, but I have two very worthy replacements. First up, there is Justine Smith from the uh, Sound on Sight podcast. Hi, I am on the Televerse, a show I am never invited on because I don't usually watch TV. Excellent. 
and uh, another very special guest, Mr. Adam Kempinar from Filmspotting. Hey guys, thanks for having me on, though I too rarely watch TV, so this should be really insightful. Well, and maybe maybe that's a good place to start, Adam. I mean, your your uh, your film podcast is is very widely known, but uh, I I don't think people necessarily know a lot about your your TV watching habits. Why is it that uh, that girls compelled you in particular? That is a great question, a good place to start probably, because it just occurs to me that as I said, I don't watch much TV. It probably made made me sound like one of those hipsters who's like, I don't watch TV. It's beneath <laughs> me or something. And that, that couldn't be you know, further from the truth. It really is just a matter of time with the show and with four kids. I just am very busy, and uh, as many people are. And, and so I just don't make a whole lot of time for television. I don't tend to have appointment viewing. Really, about the only show I regularly TiVo and will tend to watch on a nightly basis is The Daily Show. And for whatever reason, probably because of Tiny Furniture, I like that movie, the Lena Dunham film. Of course, I, I was hearing all the things that were percolating out there in terms of the pieces that were being written about the show Girls before it had aired. And even though I didn't really read any of them, if you're on Twitter, you can't help but start to digest it. And so I became really curious about it, and I wanted to give it a shot. And the beautiful thing about it, and I do have people, especially film spotting listeners, who give me a lot of grief because I'm watching Girls. I'm spending time every week watching this show when I could be catching up on the episodes of The Wire I still haven't finished, or I could be going (laughs) through Mad Men or Breaking Bad and all these series that I really – do desperately want to see and need to see at some point. And here I am every Sunday making time for something that I guess to most people seems a little bit slight and and flimsy and not as worthy as those. And whether it is or not, the fact is that's partly why I like it. It's, It's 30 minutes and it's easily digestible and I can make time for it on a Sunday night. I'm usually around on a Sunday night or get to it a little bit later than when it airs. And I have fun with the show and I have not really been dissecting it all that critically as we go, and I haven't been reading a whole lot about it, mainly because it seems to me that everyone has been so incredibly negative about it and dismissive of it in ways that kind of annoy me, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. But for me, it's just uh, it, it's fit into my schedule nicely, I guess I should say. Yeah, it's definitely the show that launched a, a thousand think pieces, and yes, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we're, we're going to get there. But Justine, you're also not a huge TV watcher if, you know, Joss Whedon's name isn't anywhere on the masthead. So what is it about girls? I know you've just been freaking out about this show. So why? Um, there are many reasons. Unlike Adam, I am, I am a hipster and I don't have four kids. But I really <laughs> know. So I don't, I don't watch TV except for bad reality television on TLC. Um, but girls, all my friends have been telling me that I had to watch it. Um, mainly my female friends saying that Justine, this show is our life. You have to go and watch it. It's so real. It's so funny. It's so us. I'm not sure if it's so real, and it's not always so funny, but it is kind of my experience. I guess I'm exactly the demographic that the show is depicting, except for the fact that I am not insanely wealthy and in denial about it. Right. Uh, I just think it's an extremely incisive, charming, slightly cruel but strangely humanist show that I enjoy so much. And part of the reason I enjoy it, like Adam, is the fact that it is only 30 minutes, so I can watch it very easily. Well, um, Adam, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Tiny Furniture, because actually 
Tiny Furniture was the reason that I was skeptical about the show at first, because I got a screener of that, I, I guess, a, a year and a half ago in the mail, and I was I, I found it utterly charmless. I didn't find hmm. it remotely funny. I found the way that she this, this her sort of long static shots were sort of anti-comedy to me. They seemed to dare you to laugh at it rather than invite you to laugh. Yeah. I, it, it just it seemed it was just totally off-putting to me. And for some reason, something about the 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 strange alchemy of television, and maybe the fact that she is uh, working a little bit with uh, some other writers and with sort of a, a bigger cast, and maybe just the fact that she's older and more experienced, something about the show works to me on a on a much more satisfying level than than the film did. And maybe it's just that it's a lot funnier. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I'm with you too. I actually would say I enjoy the series if you just take season one as a whole so far. I do like it better than Tiny Furniture, even though I was charmed by that movie a little bit more and, and think it's it's cinematic in interesting ways. I think that the way not only you mentioned the the takes and, and the way the, the kind of shot selection of the compositions, I actually think it's it manages to give you this kind of sense of alienation that that those characters are, are experiencing, her character in particular is experiencing. And I kinda of like the way you said it actually is sort of daring you to laugh at it, that was hard for me at first. It is sort of naturally off-putting, and it feels like it's it's being a little coy or deliberately provocative. I think Girls does that, too, in ways that are interesting and also sometimes not totally successful. But that's ultimately what won me, won me over uh, with both, is that I felt like I liked being dared in that way to to look at those characters a certain way, to question my assumptions about them, and to wonder if I really should be laughing at this or not. So it actually, it, it did ultimately work. I think that's what excites me about the show. Um, it's better the fact that it doesn't always work. Um, some of the jokes fall flat, and I would even say some of entire episodes fall flat. But for some reason, there's this kind of risk-taking, experimental is too strong a word, but it is getting you to have these really adverse reactions. And when I first started watching the show, I was explaining to someone how guilty it made me feel about how it constantly forces you to judge these characters and then kind of turns it on its head and makes you feel sympathy for them. But it's not always well-earned sympathy either. It's this strange kind of combination of shame. They can be human, but it's it's never totally earned, so it's really on this really fine line of emotional reaction that I find really exciting. Uh, and maybe that's a good segue to talk about the show a little bit more specifically in the fact that, I mean, we just had the finale this weekend uh, entitled She Did, and it's it's funny because the, this, I, I enjoyed the finale. I know there were some very different reactions to it, but I also had, I, I had kind of a complicated reaction to it as well, and that I I felt guilty in a way because at this point in the show, just based on how the characters are behaving and where we sort of find them uh, at, at the end of the series, the two characters who I enjoy watching the most and, and, and find the most engaging are actually the two male characters. And I don't know if that's... And I, I'd be curious to find out if, if that's just me being inadvertently sexist or... I don't know, but but Adam and Ray are... are it, it, they're not necessarily always the most level-headed characters, but to me they're they're maybe less less challenging in terms of their uh, their levels of selfishness. Yeah, I think that's true. I think by the end of that first the finale in the the first season, you do sort of come around on both Adam and Ray and realize that they're in it seems to be a much better place 
mentally, uh, emotionally than than most of the girls are. And it seems like maybe the the girls are all trying to solve some of the major issues in their lives, and the way they're going about it seems to be to to really overreact, to do really drastic things, and try to try to force themselves to change. Whereas Adam and and Ray both seem to be either comfortable with who they are or just better in tune with what kind of person they want to be, and, uh, and and it's been a little bit more of a gradual process. And so I agree with you. I think that, that they really shine in the final episode. And I, I just think, too, jumping off from that, one of the interesting points the film, uh, the show ends on that I thought was kind of interesting and maybe unique, I, I don't know, but it, it would seem to me that in a lot of series where you do have – it's an ensemble, but you have a main character – a lot of times you would kind of feel like some of the storylines with the supporting characters would be unresolved, but there might be some resolve with the main character. Some loose end might be tied up in a way that, that still gives us something to build off of in the next season, but makes us feel like we've had some kind of closure or something. And as you watch this episode, it's sort of like all the girls have their, their one major hang-up. You know, for Marnie, it's that she, she never really lets loose, and she won't relinquish control, and we see her do that at the end of this episode. Um, Shoshana was always preoccupied with her virginity. We, we see that she loses that at the end. Jess's whole thing, her big overreaction, of course, is to the speech that Catherine gives her in the previous episode that she needs to finally commit to something in her life and, and be a little more serious and less unpredictable. And so she goes off and gets married. They've all kind of tried to solve their problems. And then you get to Hannah and by the end of the episode, you know, she's, she's someone who maybe she's, maybe there's supposed to be a kind of moment of, of catharsis or, or something that we're supposed to get out of that final shot of her eating the cake and, and looking out at the water, but it, it seems like she's maybe even more lost than she's ever been, which I just thought was really interesting. Well, I certainly didn't feel any catharsis, other than she continues to like the, cake. Yeah. The thing is with uh, Lena's character, though, is that she her main issue is the finale of the episode. She cannot move forward. She cannot open up. Uh, she cannot take risks. In, like in many ways she does in terms of the way she interacts with the world and the way she deals with relationships is quote unquote risky behavior for someone as neurotic as I am. But in reality, she very few people have ever read her stuff when she hasn't, like let's say that when she's doing her reading, for example, she has an opportunity to read what she has to say and she decides not to and presents something that she knows is kind of shit, but it's this weird self defense mechanism. She's always avoiding issues. And it makes sense in terms of the show's narrative that she would not move forward. I think also it's it's interesting, though, and one of the more, I think, successful ambiguities of that last episode is even though the other characters are, we do get a sense of things happen to them that are appropriate, that are kind of season finale-y things to happen, as sort of Adam was hinting at, um, they're not necessarily better. I mean, no, it's it's not. I mean, all of these girls, they don't necessarily all end up on Coney Island, but uh, but they are all adrift in one way or another. You know, you don't really get the feeling that Marty's going to live happily ever after with Bobby Moynihan. No, no, yeah. you definitely don't. Yeah. And I, I just want to quickly add, I wish I could take credit for it. But in, in doing a little bit of research today, uh, reading about the final episode, just so I wouldn't sound like a total moron here um, with you guys, I read the, the slate recap of the finale where the uh, the girls talk about it and then the guys talk about it and Dan Coyce had a great point that I wish I I had thought of myself which is there is a beautiful callback of course in the 
that last moment of her eating that cake to the very first scene that started the whole series of her being told by her parents at dinner that uh, they were no longer going to support her and take care of her, and she wants to order cake for dessert, and the mom says, no, you can't have any cake. She finally gets to have her cake at the end of the episode. So right. I, I, I want to give a shout-out to the Slate guys for pointing that out. That is uh, – I'm, I'm glad somebody mentioned that because that would have definitely never occurred to me. That's why they pay those kids the big bucks. Exactly. Um, and – Maybe this is a this is a good opportunity since we're since we're talking a little bit about you know what people are writing about the show. This is maybe the I mean, it, it, if it's not the most divisive show on TV right now, it's it's pretty close. And I'm wondering, uh, I mean, Adam, your response to the show has basically been it's light, it's 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 fluffy. I can I can watch it in half an hour, and yet you you wouldn't and you wouldn't think that it's you know one of the most argued about shows around i mean it's not yeah what's funny is it's not watched by that many people but most people who are watching it seem to be arguing about it uh justine why do you think it's been so divisive i think it's the idea that um lena and denim kind of presented herself uh advertently or not as a television auteur i mean how is she not involved in the production of this show and just that kind of sheds a new light on the fact that this is a, a vision of a quote-unquote artist. It is not a television show in the traditional sense. This is her baby. And for whatever reason, because of her age, because of um, her upbringing, because she's female rather than male, it's this idea that she represents something that is cutting edge, new, and as many people have thrown around, the voice of a generation. It's just, it's like a weird combination. If she had just been the writer or she had just been the star, I don't think we would be talking about it in the same way. Right. And I, I mean, when you talk about her as the auteur of the show, you know, when Louis C.K. decides he's going to do a show and he writes, directs, edits, stars in every episode, you know, yeah. it's, no, it's, it's not, not a problem. Same at all. No, but it's also the fact that um, Louis C.K. is clearly a genius. Um, they're not even in the same league, at least not. She's, what, 25, 26? Yeah, I mean, that's not really fair to say, but people are making but those kind of quick dismissals. They and are that, making those yeah. dismissals, but they're making assumptions as well. They're making, uh, there's this idea that, like, Louis K. represents a demographic that is, despite the fact that he says things nobody else says, is well represented, whereas many people feel that the, uh, what Lena Dunham represents is something unusual in the world of art. So she represents something that is, more quote unquote important socially, culturally, artistically. So people want to put things on her because of that. They want to kind of give her meaning as a, an individual. Right. Like she represents something. Well, I think another thing that people are having a hard time with and, and reacting to in sometimes very strange ways is the fact that, you know, these, these four characters, you know, there's this issue of their likability. And the fact of the matter is these are all, they're meant to be, what, 22, 23 years old? And regardless of gender, most people that age, sorry, Justine, are, you know, are hopelessly self-centered, are hopelessly adrift, especially now. You know, they're, they're facing an uncertain future regardless of their, you know, financial backing or, or lack thereof. And that's something the show struggles with uh, depicting, you know, so that, that, you know, occasionally results in some episodes where I can't relate to anything at all but sometimes yeah, it, it's very successful but I, I just imagine that that has to be uh, at least one principal source for some of the some of the viewer frustration and alienation we've been seeing 
I, I think that's definitely the case, and I think what it is, and I, I have been kind of disappointed in seeing this. I just every time I see people sort of get their quick, snarky, very easy dismissal out on Twitter or somewhere else on the internet, it it, it does bother me because, and I haven't even, I haven't seen that Louis, Louis C.K. one in particular, but that's a good example where yes, he is a genius, and I I, I love his work, and there's a little bit of a sense of. There's no way Lena Dunham's on the same level he is yet, but there seems to almost be a sense that, that she thinks that she is, and how dare she put herself on that level, and I don't think she's really doing that. I think that's all a perception where it's more like everyone just needs to step back and recognize that maybe she isn't on Louis C.K.'s level right now, but she is only 23 or 24, 25 or whatever, and maybe at some point we will put her on that level, and we need to allow her just like her character, we need to allow her character to evolve and to progress. And I think that what it really comes down to for me, based on a lot of comments I've seen from people who quickly dismiss the show, is that because not only the, the actors and the performers, the people involved in the show, but the characters, whether they're having trouble paying the rent or not, they come from upper middle class backgrounds, so they can't really be called struggling. And so... Everyone wants to just dismiss their problems as if they don't have the right to have problems, that, that people who come from upper-middle-class background, backgrounds don't have the right to have problems. And look, I, don't get me wrong, I think we all would, would love for more light to be shed on truly serious problems in the world affecting people who really are struggling. But if you're going to go that route, you pretty much have to throw out every Woody Allen film that's ever been made, you know, any art that doesn't deal with those kind of basic societal problems. And, and for whatever reason, people just think it's like they don't have the right to be this self-absorbed. Well, I think they do, actually. I think anyone has the right to probably be that self-absorbed. And I, I've actually found it a little bit ironic that the, the same people who seem to be complaining about the self-absorption and the self-centeredness of the characters, they're most disappointed kind of by something you said, Simon, which is they're disappointed that they don't see enough of themselves in the show. It's like these characters are too self-centered. But I really want a show that reflects exactly who I am right. and how dare this show not do that for me. And I think I do think that's ironic, and I think that part of it is maybe people are forgetting how they were when they were that age, and they want to remember themselves as being way more, way more put together than they really were. But at the same time, I, I sit back and I think, you know, on a basic level, I, I shouldn't probably be able to relate to Hannah. I'm, I'm a man. I'm married. I, I'm a father. But I still possess those same kind of doubts about who I think I am and who I want to be. And, and I think that that's, I think that's pretty universal, even if the exact circumstances are foreign. So I really wish people would actually kind of put aside their, the, the obvious sort of ways they could dismiss this show and actually give it a chance. And I think they'd find that they can find ways in and relate to the characters. Well, I, I think another thing that people are reacting to is, you know, because we live in the so-called golden age of television, People are expecting shows, especially from HBO, that right away are fully formed and instantly accessible. I don't, I don't feel like girls – I mean, the, the thing with HBO and other uh, networks like it is this first season was created in a vacuum. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see – You know, this, I, I assume the second season's in production now or soon. I'll be curious to see how Lena Dunham and the people – and Judd Apatow and, and company uh, decide – to react to all, to all this backlash, if they do at all. I mean, obviously, the, the uh, Lena Dunham has responded to this to this notion that her show is too white, 
uh, I mean, Donald mm-hmm. Glover is uh, playing some sort of part in next season, which uh, is interesting, although I have mixed feelings about him. Um, although I, I did find it interesting how, obviously, since this first season was made in a bubble, it wasn't deliberate, but I really love that line we got, I think, from Ray last week about um, how Lena Dunham's, uh, Hannah's problems rather aren't real and she should write about real problems because it, it seemed like something you would see in, in an internet comment. Yeah, it's also, there's a few things that feel, they feel so much as if they are responsible to the internet, even the, um, not in the last episode, the episode before, when they're having their argument um, in the apartment, and Lena, Lena says, like, I, the whole self-loathing thing, like, she thought of the worst things possible about herself, so she then doesn't face her at all, but it's this really uncomfortable kind of, it clearly does, and that that whole speech and that whole exchange also felt kind of ripped from the internet for me. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, obviously she has some experience dealing with backlash just, just from dealing with people reacting to tiny furniture, which I'm sure was just as tumultuous as with, as with girls. Um, and it's, Hey, since we're talking about past episodes, I was just going to throw this out there anyway. I was wondering if you guys could share maybe your, your favorite episode and maybe your, if you feel like it, your least favorite, the, the episode that just felt off or didn't work for you. I, I'm really glad you asked because I had actually, I, I had thought about that. I was really curious to get your guys' takes on whether or not there was an episode that just seemed to work perfectly and then one that just seemed like an absolute disaster. And for me, it was episode three was the one that everything kind of clicked together for me. And it, it, it all culminates with the, the conversation at the end with Elijah, where we meet her, her old boyfriend who's now gay. Just the, the, or was probably gay then, of course, but, but now he's actually out about it. And that entire conversation was just such a brilliant set piece, watching the, the different surprises, the surprises, the revelations that happen with both of those characters, the shifts in tone, where they're, they're both at different times trying to kind of be magnanimous and be the better person, but then they can't help but kind of be their normal petty selves and all their old wounds come out. I really loved that episode. I was actually trying to turn one of my friends onto the series who was dismissing it just from based on, you know, what he'd heard about it and seen from some glances. And, and he happened to watch that episode and it was perfect timing because that, that really hooked him. At the same time for me, the episode that really lost me was, and I don't have the names in front of me, but episode eight that that episode for me, uh, let's put it this way: it was the it was the one involving the three way with Thomas John. Um, that one is the one where sort of there are times where girls feels like it it is trying to be so deliberately provocative that it's the last show in the world you'd you'd ever want to watch with like one of your parents because it would just be so uncomfortable and embarrassing. And that episode for me seemed like just the culmination of that, where you know you've got. Adam peeing on her in the shower. We have his really awkward kind of bad performance scenes and him being all pretentious about how that, that show is going. And then that whole potential three-way thing just felt like it, – it felt to me provocative in a way that the rest of the series hadn't really, where it, it, was, it was just kind of trying to push our buttons – Rather, and, and it was almost living up to the the stereotype of this show so far, rather than it, it feeling like it really made sense with the characters and, and was funny. That episode is the one that lost me. How about you, Justine? Um, I'm actually going to start with the one I liked the least because the same one. Um, episode eight stands out as 
obviously the episode where very little works. It's just not funny. It's it's kind of boring. Um, it it does feel exactly what Adam was saying. It feels like it's it's everything that people who don't like the show think about it. It none of it's real. It nothing. You could remove the episode and this sequence makes sense. It it really it's just, it fails in a really obvious way. So I'm not crazy. And it just bothers me that one episode. No, that it, it's an episode that. The, when someone says, what's the worst episode, by far it stands out the first one that comes to mind. Like, not even, I don't even have to think about it. Okay. As for uh, my favorite, it would have to be um, which episode was that? Episode 7? The one right before. When they have the party. Uh, the party episode has, I laughed so hard. The crack accident, yes. Incredibly well shot. <laughs> yeah, it was for a TV show that's like a sit- based on a sitcom, a comedy, a half-hour comedy, it looks beautiful. The interactions, the dynamics, the balancing of of the different characters' problems within the same settings, um, and the way that the episode concludes with Lena getting exactly what she wants, and we're supposed to be feeling, I, like in a traditional TV format, you're supposed to be happy for her, but she has this kind of evil grin, and you're really uncomfortable <laughs> With not even with, and like let's face it, up to this point, Adam has not particularly demonstrated himself as a good human being or an or someone who is a person you want to be in a relationship with, and yet in those final moments you are more worried for him than you are for Lena, and it's just it's all of that facial expression, and it just and the whole Shoshana thing made me laugh so hard. I love that episode. So to me, that was like the best. The crack scenes with Ray are genuinely hysterical. Uh, yes. That, 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 I think Ray is my favorite character. Ray is a good one, and I, I do like that episode. I have. To, I feel like I have to defend uh, episode eight now, because I, I don't know, personally, I don't know why, but uh, Chris O'Dowd's whole freakout before the, the threesome thing happens, I think, uh, just totally cracked me up and sold me on, on that portion of the episode. I didn't think it was the best episode by any means, but I, I did think it was at least very funny at times. Worst episode for me was actually episode 9. Um, the the sort of fight episode between Marnie and um, and Hannah that uh, we got last week. If only because the way I don't know if you re- guys recall this, but the way that the the actual fight was staged uh, and edited there, there were like these two second pauses between and this seems like a really nitpicky thing, but it but it did uh, it did ruin the episode for me. These long pauses between jabs that feel like they're really thinking about what they're saying rather than just impulsively trying to hurt each other, and it just it made I feel like a lot of the a lot of the show is superbly edited and directed, and that sequence just did did not work for me and derailed the whole episode. Um, I agree with you, Adam, in, in the sense that um, the third episode is where the show starts to get really really good. The first two weeks, I wasn't sure what all the the couple was about. I was enjoying it, but it didn't. It wasn't working for me totally. But I think my favorite episode is the return, which is episode five or six, six. probably right? uh, episode six, six. which is uh, the episode. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, episode six, where uh, Hannah goes. It's an entire episode of Hannah with her parents, which and I don't. And I'm not saying it's the best episode because the other girls aren't there. Because that's not what it is. I just loved the dynamic between Hannah and her parents and just her parents alone and uh, this this whole sort of her strange little romance with a with a local kid and 
I don't know. Everything about that episode worked was surprising and wonderful and funny in ways that mm-hmm. uh, that didn't always come together in some of the other episodes. Yeah, yeah I thought that one. Was, I thought that one was a good one too. Definitely. Uh, though there was there was one of those moments where I also like that dynamic with uh, the actor I think is Lou Taylor Pucci where they have that she kind of has a, a fling with the the pharmacist and it's good but at the same time there's one of those girls type moments where I could see the, the haters really kind of ripping on it where uh, when she's in bed with him and she she does something that's a, you know we'll just say it's a little too aggressive and and maybe a little bit abnormal and it I think it was meant to show her uh, her kind of big cityness how her kind of her sense of normalcy is a little bit maybe off from from what life might be like back in the small town because she's been in New York and maybe how she's been jaded by Adam a little bit. But it, it kind of just felt to me like there was no – it's not really a matter of her really thinking about it or um, it affecting her as much as it's just there for kind of a punchline. I think that sometimes too ma- there are too many of those moments in the series where it, it, it's, it's doing something off the wall like that. Mm-hmm just to try to be absurd and funny. But the fact is, more often than not, they are absurd and funny, and, and they do work. Yeah, so. I, I think it's the comic moments that are the, the trickiest. In fact, another another reason Episode Nine is my least favorite is um, they, there's this whole riff earlier in the episode when Hannah's talking about um, this other girl she knows who's become a famous author and how she wishes she had a dead boyfriend, and why can't she have a dead boyfriend? Wouldn't that be... Why, why can't I be lucky like that? And it's, you know, it's kind of funny on paper, but it's it's a little broad and cartoonish for what the show's usually going for. Yeah, I guess, but at the same time, to me, that's why the show feels real, because that's how girls talk. They like to evoke response, and they like to be charming and television-like. It's like, she's on TV, and she knows she's on TV, but she wants to be on TV because she's a character who's not on TV. <laughs> it's Maybe it's just me. <laughs> that didn't make any sense. My head is spinning right now. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's a good way to to wrap things up. Well, I guess, I guess that's sort of also uh, that's an indicator of the show's Sex in the City influences. These are well, these are the girls who grew up watching Sex in the City, and now they always they all think they're on TV. I'm really glad you said that because I don't want to go. I, I hate to hijack the show, Simon, but I, I have to ask. I think I think we have to put our cards on the table and go back to the first episode when Shoshana does invoke Sex in the City and talks about which character she thinks she is. I think we all have to be honest here and reveal which, which character we think we are from this show. Ooh. All right, Justine, you go first because you have the least uh, dysmorphia to go through to, for this. <laughs> oh. I guess that it's really hard because I see so much of myself in so many of them in different ways. I think that I'm closest to Lena because I feel that I relate to her physical awkwardness. And I'm also lazy like she is, although I'm aware that I'm lazy (laughs) and she's not. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I have ambition, but I don't exercise it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm like Hannah. Uh, so what are so what are you, Adam? <laughs> well, I as you can imagine, I've given this way too much thought. <laughs> I here, the fact is, I'd like to think I'm a Hannah. I'm I also think of myself. I'm I'm generally pretty insecure. I like to think I'm this creative person, but the fact is, I'm, I'm always kind of stuck in my own head a little bit, and always worried that someone's going to see through me, and that I, I'm feeling a little bit like a phony. And so when it comes down to it. I'm totally a Marnie. I'm actually, I'm Marnie. I'm the one who probably, in my circle of friends, I'm going to be the one who who seems to have 
their life the most together, probably the most mature, never willing to let yourself go completely and be out of control. So in other words, I'm, I'm the uptight one. All right. I'm, I'm the uptight Marnie. And, so. and Brian Williams is your father. Well, that would be okay. <laughs> I could live with that. I like Brian Williams. All right. So who are you? Uh, you know, I, I, I kept thinking to myself, no, I'm, I'm an Adam or I'm a Ray, but I, that's not allowed. So <laughs> no, it's not. So you can't. I know, that. I know, I know. That's cheating. And, it, and it, it's not true in either case, anyway. I mean, the guy who plays Adam is an ex-Marine. Like, no, I can't pull that off. And you're, you're, you're wearing a shirt right now, I'm guessing. Yeah, yes, so. I am. That's very astute of you. Um, right. So I'm gonna have to say, based on <laughs> on the fact that I often make rash, life-altering decisions that don't actually alter anything, that I'm that I'm a Jessa. Nice. Um, Got some variety here. Yeah. Well, I, I felt like it'd be, it'd be better to go that way. I, you know, I, I don't often get into strange quasi affairs with James Legrose, but I can work on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's <laughs> as good a note as I need to take it out on. Uh, Adam, where can our listeners find you? Filmspotting.net is where they can listen to the show, or you can subscribe. Just do a search in iTunes for Filmspotting. And Justine. Uh, you can find me on time on site. You can find me on Twitter at Red Room Rantings, um, where I post where I write and occasionally the TV shows I make. Uh, yeah, you're you're doing a video cast now, sometimes, right? On CUTV, right? On CUTV. I do a video cast on CUTV Concordia Television. Excellent. Uh, so thank you guys for uh, for coming and and joining me. And uh, I'm I'm hoping for great stuff from next season. And uh, pr- perhaps perhaps we'll reconvene in a year. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll be right back with more of the Televerse. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks, five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Never seen so many trees in my life. W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day. Weatherman said rain. You get paid that kind of money for being wrong 60% of the time and be working. So I'll be meeting up with the uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. We'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. I guess we're going to go up to intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. But it, it is Laura Palmer. Are you Laura Palmer? Hey, 
My arms, Linda. She's little Louis Feaster. Where are we from? The birds sing a frisky song. And there's the way you can hear. back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik with Simon Howell, as ever, and this week at the DVD shelf, we are talking Twin Peaks with Lindsay Wood from the Sound and Sight Doctor Who podcast. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So Twin Peaks is one of the most influential shows in the history of television, pretty much, particularly uh, you know, in in the more recent period, 90s and and on. And so, I mean, it's definitely a significant show, but why is it Outside of that, uh, Lindsay, why is it that you wanted to talk about this show? I wanted to talk about Twin Peaks because I think it was a really big turning point for U.S. television um, as far as detective TV shows were going. I think that bringing David Lynch into it made some really uh, – he made some big decisions as far as, like, the way television was going when the TV show came out. Not that I remember when it actually aired, but – Looking back, that's that's why I think that it was such an impact, kind of a TV show. Did you guys? Did, you guys didn't watch it as it like aired, did you? <laughs> no, we're not. I don't. I'm, I personally wasn't old enough. Yeah, I should hope I wasn't watching it when I was five. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I would have been like six. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's funny because I look back and I definitely remember like parts of Law and Order and parts of like the X Files and being traumatized from it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. I think it it did a lot because, of course, Twin Peaks uh, premiered in 1990 and continued for two seasons or sort of one and a half. Uh, and but it had such an impact in that short span. And I mean, I've, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like Twin Peaks predates the X Files. Yes, it does. And, and I, I feel like it, it did a lot to promote first. First of all, serialized, serialized uh, television as opposed to a procedural because it's such a dense mythology uh, of of a world and I mean it's easy to forget when we're talking about Twin Peaks cuz because it was so short lived that it was a huge hit when it first started out its first season uh had really great ratings and so I think it kind of changed the way that people or at least it started the process of changing the way that people watch television and introducing you know starting out as a more sta- standard show and then adding supernatural elements and getting twistier and turnier and you know, pretty soon, uh, you know, David, the the Lynchian side of it, or I guess we should also make sure we credit Mark Frost, the Frostian side of the show, really coming out in force. And not first of all, serialization, second of all, supernatural element, but also just, you know, TV is more of an art form and is a more experimental medium. And so I think, I think you're right. It's a very significant show uh, for those reasons. Yeah, it's, although it's funny, when people, showrunners, etc., writers, talk about how Twin Peaks was an influence on them, there's there is a lot about Twin Peaks that I really haven't seen reproduced since Twin Peaks. I mean, for instance, obviously, I'm I'm sure Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse have talked about Twin Peaks. People, showrunners like them, have have talked about the influence of the show. But I feel like 
there hasn't been another show since that's really valued the uncanny in the same way. I mean, a, a show like Lost definitely incorporates elements of, of um, you know, sur- the, of the surreal and, you know, strange cliffhangers and things like that. But there's always this idea that uh, eventually the, the curtain will be drawn and, and all will be revealed. And, you know, whether or not that actually happened is something for Lost fans to keep, continue to argue about until the end of time. <laughs> but with, with Twin Peaks, there's never really a sense, I mean, you know, with some exceptions and we'll we'll get to that with with a lot of what's going on at least personally i didn't ever feel the need for explanation i i I didn't feel the need uh for for every single thing that you know especially that that cooper encounters in the black lodge for instance i i I didn't need an origin story for every one of those things and i i can't imagine anyone wanting them it's because it's just such a joy to luxuriate in the atmosphere which you know so much of that you have to credit lynch for uh, as well as Angela Badalamenti, who co-composed the music with Lynch. Yeah, I, I really haven't seen another show since that, that's just happy to to go down these strange blind alleys and and just follow every whim without worrying about you know sort of endlessly detailing its mythology in a way that necessarily adds up. Well, and that's something that we talked about recently, uh, Simon, when we had uh, when we talked about the finale of Awake, and it was that was an episode that so strongly reminded me of Twin Peaks. For that exact reason, and it sort of reminded me how much I, I miss that in my television. Just this, you know, having just a strange, totally bizarre element or or scene, but not feeling the need to explain, letting the audience bring, you know, their interpretation to it, or even just letting them absorb what they're seeing, and not feeling the need to pin everything down, tie up every loose end. Uh, so I think I think that's an excellent point. I think that a Twin Peaks has really, like, set its own kind of, yeah, like Simon said, the uncanny, you know, like, it set its own tone, and a lot of shows do draw on that now, and it, again, you know, you can notice a moment in a TV show and say, oh, that's kind of got a Twin Peaks feel, like, it's really set its own tone, and I don't know if genre is the right word, you guys probably have more, you know, particular one that you can use to summarize what I'm trying to say, but I think that it's created its own feeling, and it's it's a feeling that's very unique when you watch that show where like you're right you believe that world that they live in and you definitely don't question it they they really like it just sucks you in well and what i find so interesting about that in and i would i would say tone i think that's exactly the right word is that twin peaks isn't just twin peaksy or how what we think of now a scene or a moment having a, a twin peaks kind of vibe the show also is it has that element of the more surreal, uh, you know, experimental side, but then it also has this incredibly heightened soap opera-y, 50s on crack kind of uh, yes. side to it as well. And I, it was something that was so funny to me. One of my one of my buddies, who's a, a big film guy and, and, and enjoys Lynch, finally sat down and watched the pilot of Twin Peaks and then sent me, sent me a Facebook message asking uh, – I, so I'm halfway through the Twin Peaks pilot. Is this show amazing or terrible? Because I'm not sure. And I feel like that's exactly <laughs> the sort of reaction that most people are going to have. Watch either you're going to love it, you're going to see all this crazy stuff that it's doing, or you're it's just going to drive you nuts. All the all the weeping and all the overwrought you know emotions of of these characters. 
I rewatched my well, favorite episode um, before we did this podcast. My favorite episode is the third episode in the first season um, at Laura Palmer's funeral mm-hmm. where her dad, like, breaks down and throws himself onto the casket <laughs> and the fight breaks out. And there's a guy that's got, like, mental disabilities repeating himself. Like, there's just – I'm watching it, and I'm like, I don't think there is a television funeral that is more dramatic than this one. Like, well, it and- can't be anything else. And that's another thing that really separates Twin Peaks from every single show that has claimed influence from it that's followed is it embraces camp and, you know, and and sort of soap opera plotting in a way that no other show of its caliber, I think, has since. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and it it also openly mocks that. I mean, with Invitation to Love, the show is in the show. that pops up every once in a while and is always hilarious. I would totally watch an entire episode of Invitation to Love, by the way. If they wanted to, you know, Children's Hospital style, have a spinoff within the show where you just watch Invitation to Love for an hour, I would totally do it. Um, but, yeah, it looked awesome. But uh, well, and also, maybe I should just spend more time watching actual soaps. The uh, Invitation to Love, when you're watching it, it, it directly mirrors what's happening in Twin Peaks. Uh, so you, something that happens in Invitation to Love in the background of a scene happen will happen in the next scene of the episode to our actual characters we're following. And it's such a, a, a fun way to comment on the ridiculousness of these people's, uh, these people's day-to-days. I mean, and I guess maybe that's a way to start talking about these characters. But I think it's so interesting that, for me, uh, there are characters in the show that I absolutely love. And then there are also characters that feel like such a complete misstep. And I'm curious yep. to see what you guys think about that. Well, I mean, maybe we should just start with, does anybody like James? Anybody? No. No. Okay, I didn't think so. I was trying to decide if he, if we were supposed to think he was completely pathetic, and that he's like this small town's idea of a rebel, but he's so clearly <laughs> not. So I was trying to yeah. decide if it was meta or if it was just bad casting. They They must have known. I mean, yeah. Honestly, with all these intelligent people involved, they must have known. Why would then again, it was the that? early 90s, so. <laughs> uh, well, who knows? Uh, but I mean, uh, uh, on the flip side, I don't think anyone will dispute the fact that um, Dale Cooper is one, has to be in the top five most iconic TV cops of all time. Yeah. Or feds, I guess. Mm-hmm. He's pretty great. <laughs> what do we think of Laura Flynn Boyle? Well, it's nice that she looks like she's uh, actually eaten a cheeseburger at some point. In right. This, in this part of her career, she looks lovely, and it would you know it's too bad this Lara Flynn Boyle isn't around uh, anymore. I actually I think I enjoyed her in the earlier parts of, of the show a lot more than I expected, because I, I don't think she's given the best material, but I think she does a pretty good job no. of 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 you know playing what she's given. Well, the women in general, I mean, I have to say, don't really get the best material, although if I may be permitted a moment sexism, um, Twin Peaks inarguably has the most attractive female cast of any TV show of all time. Are they I ever? They're I totally agree mean, L- Lara Flynn Boyle, Sherilyn Fenn, uh, Joan Chen, Cheryl Lee, um, oh, so many Peg- more. Uh, Peggy Lipton. Peggy, Lipt- uh, Peggy Lipton, yeah. of course, mother of Rashida Jones. Uh, it, it, the list goes on. And of course, Mad- uh, Grace Mad- Dabrowski. How do we forget? Should, yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, Matchinamic. Of course, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's ridiculous, and there's so, there's there's just so much more interesting to watch than like most of their most of their uh, contemporaries of their age on the show. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, uh, for I, obvious reasons. Well, I think there's something about the the characters, and maybe this has to do with um, the way that that Lynch and Frost treat them and what they give them to to work with. But I, I'm way more interested in the stories that the women are given than the stories that the men outside of Dale Cooper are given to work with. For example, I care way more about Norma than I do in her side of that love triangle than I do about about Ed uh, and, uh, and and what he's dealing with. And I care way more about Shelley than I do, for example, about Bobby. Well, I think yeah, the, the the young the young men characters. I think in general. I mean, obviously James is the worst because it doesn't get any worse than James. I don't think we can say that often enough. But yeah, the, the young women are definitely more charismatic, and I I love that. Um, that Lynch and Frost only meant to have Cheryl Lee on as a dead person mm-hmm. because they, you know, they thought she looked great wrapped in plastic. But then they, you know, they they, they shot that one scene, that sequence of her, of course, uh, that iconic sort of home video sequence of her in uh, having a ridiculously <laughs> giddy picnic. Yeah. Um, and probably also Trist, but you don't see that part of the video, of course. And, um, and then, of course, they liked her so much that they brought her on as, and there is no soapier concept than the identical twin cousin. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> uh, I will say, though, that uh, for me, a clear exception to the to the gender dynamics uh, or the coupling, you know, of who, who I care about are, are uh, the Palmers. And uh, and Ray Wise's performance is so fabulous. I I, you know, I really enjoy you know his storyline. So I care way more about him than her. Right? But have, let's talk about let's talk about him for a little bit and uh, just the the fact that he's been he's made a career out of being uh, I guess we'll not worry about spoilers. So out of out of playing unsuspecting uh, or someone you wouldn't suspect villainous characters. Yeah, Ray, Ray Wise, you know. It, I, I kind of feel bad for Ray Wise because ever since Twin Peaks, he's really thought of as this big ham who can come on and, and play, you know, ridiculous villains. But he does a lot of different stuff over the course of Twin Peaks. And he's got, he maybe has the widest range of emotional beats out of any character. And yes, it's outsized. Yes, it's a little hammy. But he sells it. And I mean, and, and one of the few, I mean, at some point we're going to have to talk about the, the downside of, of the show, which is, there's a clear uh, quality drop in the post-Laura Palmer death part of season two. But one of the reasons that, the, that it stays good for a little while after you figure out what's going on is that his demise is, uh, is one of my favorite sequences. And, uh, and he absolutely pulls that off with gusto. Yeah, I think he's great. I mean, uh, yes, he has some hammier moments, particularly towards the beginning and end of the show, but I feel, you know, there's some subtler stuff going on as well. And I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ray Wise, but let's talk for a little bit about Dale Cooper and the performance from Kyle MacLachlan. There's, there's another guy who doesn't get enough respect. I don't think. Um, and I mean, he sort of founded a whole niche to himself, mostly thanks to his repeat collaborations with Lynch. And they're just so ideal a pairing because he does wide-eyed innocence and sort of constant. Uh, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Constant curiosity, uh, really, really well. And he blends into Lynch's sort of. He's a good counterbalance to Lynch's more sinister urges, 
which are tempered somewhat on Twin Peaks, I would say, compared to most of his movies, which, well, I'll talk about Lynch more later. But uh, And he continues to be a great foil for Lynch's sort of uh, leanings uh, on, the, on the show. And he's, I mean, he's just such a, he's such an iconic character because he, I mean, he's, I, I love the blend of mysticism and practicality and all the strange ticks that will that will never go explained like of course who is he talking to in this tape recorder we we will never know and that's fantastic i mean i i if there's anyone alive who doesn't love dale cooper i don't want to meet them <laughs> i i don't know dale cooper is iconic like i just i can't even at first i watched him and i was like oh my god i, I seriously hated him the first time i kind of like went through Tw- twin peaks he just got so far under my skin i had nightmares like it hurt me <laughs> Less, slightly less than the theme song does. Theme song just leaves me feeling so creepy. But and and I love all of these things. Like I love that this TV show just makes you feel so emotionally. For like you walk away and you're like, why? Why do I feel this way? <laughs> Dale Cooper is now just behind Gully and Mulder in my like detective esque pair. Mm-hmm. He he holds ground behind them for like iconic TV show detectives for me. Yeah, it's you know it's a difficult role I imagine trying to to you know that constant enthusiasm um, like you're saying Simon that the character has I mean it would be so easy for and you know, maybe that's why for you Lindsay on first viewing it was but it would be so easy for this character to just be incredibly annoying with his constant optimism and and quirks and you know he, you you could see how how a watered down version of this show could you know, could be a USA original, you know, characters first. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but McLaughlin, just, he he hits that tone so perfectly. And, and I, you know, he's such a perfect foil for this, for this setting with this 50s, you know, uh, nostalgia and, and fetishism because he's such a, you know, square-jawed, uh, crisp suit wearing sort of 50 50s ideal of a of a G-man you know even though he doesn't quite fit that physically but that the character is so has so many corners I feel uh, mm-hmm. it, it, that it just it works incredibly well I just think that like you learn to embrace his character the way he embraces it in some ways where like you know you see him kind of adjusting not adjusting but like understanding Twin Peaks as the episode goes on as a character and then you almost begin to understand him and I just feel like this connection gets built as the episodes go on where you kind of learn to love him a little like and his dedication and yeah the enthusiasm like he must be exhausted as an actor playing that role (laughs) (laughs) probably I think some credit is also due to uh, Michael Lankin who plays um, Sheriff Truman Mm. and they're just they're such a great pair yeah uh, and also, while we're talking about the feds, uh, I, I have to give some credit to Miguel Ferrer. I love him. He's, he's not there for the, for even close to the whole show, from from what I recall. But he has, I think, he's of course uh, he plays Agent Rosenfeld, and he gets maybe my favorite scene of the entire show when he's he and Truman don't really get along very well, but at one point. He, when they're having a particularly heated argument, he completely changes the tone by saying, you know, just by, by just explaining how he he embraces he's a pacifist and he embraces love and we must all embrace love. <laughs> and it's just such a such a gloriously weird moment, and I just love that man. Oh, Albert, it's a great character, and and when he comes into the show, 
you hadn't realized that you really were missing that sort of voice and and uh, that jab in the arm. But but as soon as he comes in, it's just the perfect thing to to sort of revitalize some of those uh, sheriff scenes. And while we're still on the subject of the feds, of course, Lynch himself shows mm-hmm. up uh, a little later in the run as, you know, just absolutely cl- clearly having a blast uh, as in a thoroughly ridiculous role, which he goes into. Again, just th- there's no way to half-ass a role on Twin Peaks, and he absolutely does not. I haven't seen him act in anything besides the Twin Peaks, but he's he's fairly credible in a very silly role. I had no idea that was him when I saw it the first time. I found out after the fact, and it, it was very strange for me because I didn't picture the person who this show's brain came out of looking Being that so normal. <laughs> and so, yeah, so <laughs> adorable and kind of wacky and smiley. Uh, but, no, he's he's a whole lot of fun for me. I know some people aren't a big fan of that character, uh, but it works for me. Lindsay, what do you think? Definitely. I bought into it. Oh, the whole show, it just, yeah, I definitely bought into the whole thing, actually. I want to have, like, a Twin Peaks party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're talking about uh, some of these more adorable and uh, and fun-loving characters. Let's talk briefly about Bob. Oh, my, why? Holy shit, Bob is scary. (laughs) Bob is, again, to me at least, he's at least as iconic a villain or villainous force as Cooper is a lawman. And I love the origin story of Bob too. The the fact that the the guy who who plays him was he was just an onset carpenter. He wasn't he was never meant to be in the show in in, in any capacity. But uh, Lynch and or Frost just fell in love with how absolutely evil he looked. <laughs> and he just he just and this is the sort of thing. I mean, Twin Peaks is built uh, in, in strange ways around these uh, improvised elements. And, and just that wound that wind up just being huge cornerstones of the sh- of the show. Everything from Cheryl Lee being a becoming a fixture to to, to Bob himself, and that's not something you you can say about a lot of serialized dramas. Or if it is, it's usually not in a good way. But yeah, Bob is uh, is an incredible um, malevolent force, and it, it, it and probably if it weren't for, and if, if it weren't for Bob, actually, I think the whole show would just slide into gooey ridiculousness. You you need something absolutely terrifying on the periphery, well, he, making making sure you know that there's some kind of stakes, despite the fact that everything is very strange. Cooper is such a great character, and McLaughlin is so engaging in that role, and he's so competent, and he's so good at his job and determined. You need somebody equally uh, powered, equally strong as a villain, and I, I absolutely agree that without... Bob there to offset I don't think the show would work and I mean for me I'm curious about you guys but for me that first image we get of Bob in in uh, Laura's mom's uh, I can't name excuse me her her vision Sarah Palmer her her nightmare or whatever is it's terrifying yes yes um and also as long as we're talking about as long as how scary the show is I think it's also worth noting that even when Lynch isn't directing, he has certain hallmarks in his directing that are very particular to him in terms of uses of lighting and sound or lack of sound and uh, set design and, of course, music. We'll get there, too, um, that are totally unique to him and that also become a huge cornerstone of the show. And another reason that I think the show hasn't really been emulated is that no one really gets under your skin in the same way 
I'm trying to figure out how I want to phrase this. As much as, uh, yeah, as much as his character sat with me and as creepy as he was, it wasn't the one that sat with me the most, if that makes any sense. Okay. I think the people that play stronger to kitschy characters are the ones that stand out in the show, and the creepier ones, as creepy as they are, almost seemed a little over the top. Okay. I think that's fair. Are, are you in, are you including Windmerl? No. <laughs> no. I'm not. I'm, but definitely, um, oh, what's his name? Um, the creepy dude that was pushing the drugs with Renault and the it's Renault, right? In the in the first oh, couple of episodes. Shelley Pilchard. Part Leo. Yeah. Leo. Leo. I keep wanting to say Leroy. He yeah, he's another one where it's like you're so creepy, you look like you're a rapist, but. The stronger, ha- like not happier, but good doers stand out way more. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Although I, I have to say, I mean, Leo, while he's conscious, is for me a hit, a hit and miss character. But I, 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 I do take a lot of guilty lols at the use of unconscious Leo, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. So we've been talking about these different characters on on the show, but I think it's time we talked about the music, which is absolutely just as much of a character on this on this series. Um, now, I said earlier that I, I like half the music and I hate half the music. That is incorrect. I love anything that's jazz, and I am not a fan of all the 90s synth. Oh, see, uh, to me, the, the, the synthesizer is key. That makes it for me, too. It's the creep factor, and it just, like, resonates with me. Uh, it just feels so dated and not in the oh. way that it's trying to feel. Dated. I don't. I don't know. I was. You know what? If you go to, um, uh, you'll have to Google it. I'm sorry. Um, on David Lynch's site now, there's something called the Twin Peaks Archives, mm-hmm. and there's literally, I think, somewhere between six and nine hours of music, just from Twin Peaks. There's a there's a ridiculous amount. And when I was, I, I'll put it on at night just to go to sleep or to have on just as ambient music or if I uh, feel like having nightmares, and it's. I just noticed. I know. I noticed strange things like, for some reason, you know, woodwinds and other elements will be um, acoustic, but when but there's you'll never ever hear an acoustic string part in no, the entire of, of, of Twin Peaks. And that's. I mean, it was clearly a, a deliberate move. Uh, to, to me, it, it's a crucial part of of the otherworldliness of the show. Uh, I mean, I, I I feel like if if acoustic strings started showing up, it would take me right out of it. Oh, I disagree so strongly, but maybe that's maybe that's why. Maybe it's because I'm a string player and synth strings, especially because usually I feel I feel like at this time period there's a there was a lot of bad '90s synth in TV scoring. Um, for example, if you ever watch Profit, which is a fantastic short like one season show, uh, it's really hard to get past the terrible synth soundtrack, at least for me. And and I feel like a lot of times they weren't using composers at this time for TV scoring and other things weren't using synth to sound like synth. They were using synth to because you could totally make it sound like any instrument, except that it doesn't. Right, which, which you couldn't at all. And so when you know, I feel I feel like they're trying to fake the string sound, and so no, I, it, it immediately pulls me out. No, sorry, and I I hope people excoriate you for your views because you you'll deserve it. No, it's the, that's okay. The 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 synth strings are are very very important, and 
also, the more you listen to, um, to sort of the music from Twin Peaks, the more you realize the insane variety. I mean, like, obviously there's, you've got all the sort of, you know, corny marching band stuff when whenever, when they get the whole Miss Twin Peaks storyline. Mm-hmm. You've got sort of, you've got obviously ambient music is a huge part of it, thanks to... Um, thanks to Julie Cruz and just that, I yeah. guess that's the sort of that's that's the stuff that people most associate with it. You've got sort of there, there's definitely an experimental bent as well. I mean there's there's a whole there's a whole suite in the on the Twin Peaks archives called a, like a down pitched orchestra, which I mean obviously it's not really an orchestra. Thank you, Kate. But um, <laughs> just they're, they're going on all sorts of uh, bizarre uh, in all sorts of bizarre directions with the music. Also, if you can on YouTube, there's a great video from, I believe, the Twin Peaks Gold Box with Angelo Badalamenti talking about how he and Lynch sat down and and composed, well, I mean, Badalamenti did the bulk of the composing, but they sat down and figured out the main theme in 20 minutes. And just with, with Badalamenti narrating, as Lynch told to him, sort of the emotional beats of the storyline and how those informed his chord changes. And he, uh, Badalamenti's a pretty, a pretty neat guy to watch uh, at work. Okay. And uh, I, I highly recommend people check that out. I will check that out. I actually have that box set. It's great. But I it still hate some strings with a passion. Well. That cannot well, be quenched by the raging, uh, raging rivers of whatever. You have to tie Kate up next time we, like, have a drink with her and only play that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, I'm, God. I'm going to subject you to the entire archive. And then, and then we'll play the soundtrack from um, Blade Runner because that's all Cynthia too. Oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah. That's the thing. I, yeah, I like you're saying. There is such a wide variety of music in this in, in this show, and it is absolutely iconic. And I love a lot of it. As soon as that, as soon as the the jazzy stuff kicks in, uh, pretty much every time uh, Sherilyn Fenn is on screen, her theme I, I love. I love all the music in the Black Lodge. My, I think really, uh, it's that you know that that specific thing. I hate the synth. Drinks. But I'll, I'll, that's clearly a me issue. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I'm sorry. You, okay. you are not going to get any backup on this. Um, so uh, we, we haven't, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but we really haven't discussed the fact that, I mean, when the show aired, yes, the, the first season was a huge hit, and the second season was a huge hit for a while. Uh, of course, it was insisted upon by the network that really they ought to tie up this Laura Palmer storyline sometime soon, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, that I guess there were divergent views, in, you know, sort of amongst the uh, the creative heads. But Lynch certainly didn't want it ever to be resolved. I think they probably had a resolution in mind, but I don't think they ever wanted to actually show it. But of course they did. And midway through season two, you that is wrapped up more or less with a bow. And then after that, things get a little dodgy for a while. Yeah, when you have, I mean, I know, Lindsay, the villains aren't as successful for you, but for me, when you have such a fantastic, strong arc, and I would compare it strongly with the first season of Veronica Mars, where yeah, it's, I was thinking that earlier, actually. It's it, you know, it's very similar tonal. Uh, tonal uh, thread or, or narrative thread when you when you wrap it up and you do it so fantastically well i mean the resolution of that of that plot line i mean you already talked about simon it's one, it's one of your favorite scenes um it, it's just fantastic so trying to top that is really tough and i don't think there 
even a little bit successful in trying to do that. Things start to sort of kick in towards the end of the second season again, and they seem to start finding their footing. But as soon as they bring in, oh, remember that guy that we caught? He has a brother. Um, yeah. <laughs> even worse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of terrible. Yeah, but I, it really can't be stressed enough how awesome the last couple and especially the finale is. I that's the, the finale is one of my favorite episodes. It is phenomenal, and of course Lynch directed it. Not a coincidence. From the second first season, sorry. The second season. Second season finale. Okay. Yes, I think that, rewatch it sometime. It's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't get there. I rewatched the third, and then I rewatched the finale for the first season, and then I ran out of time and sleep. <laughs> Re, rewatch it soon. It's we talked about this when we talked about the Awake finale, but it was an open gambit by the showrunners to throw in as many insane turns and cliffhangers as they possibly could so that, of course, they couldn't be canceled, mm. which didn't work, but it makes for a pretty fun finale. I read somewhere that they were given $4 million for the pilot. That seems like a lot at the time. Well, it, it is a two-hour pilot. It's but yes, it it seems lot. like a lot of money at the time, considering it's not really like... Like, there's no special effects, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Not really, no. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of dead girl makeup effects, I guess. Yeah, I guess, but come on now. Yeah, I don't know. It's, that's interesting. Didn't they have YouTube to do that stuff then? No? I mean, the, 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 full <laughs> version, the full version of the pilot is quite long. Like, the European cut is two hours or maybe even a little longer. Okay, European cut. We're in Canada. <laughs> relax. Hey, that's on the gold box. <laughs> it's also easy to forget that uh, Cooper doesn't show up for the first, like, half of the pilot. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but when we talk about uh, the, the finale, for me, elements of the finale I think are incredibly effective. But I I also think that other you know I would I think the finale suffers from some of having to deal with some of the plot threads that they had introduced in the the, the middle of the second season. Like I don't I'm so I don't yeah, care about true. Heather Graham at all. I don't care about Billy yeah, Zane. No, no. I don't, you know, I don't care about these, these other characters that they, because they were, I mean, at least for me, I'm curious what you guys think. They were so clearly developing something with Dale Cooper and Audrey. And maybe, you know, I know the, that uh, I believe it was McLaughlin didn't want anything, any sort of relationship to happen between those two characters because of the age difference. He didn't think it was true to his character. But then to all of a sudden, Boo. to clearly introduce for both of them, uh, go look at this pretty person instead. Like right at the same time, is it felt so completely uh, inauthentic, and it, and so that for me, there are these you know elements of that, that in the finale that really detract from from a lot of the the high points of it. That's fair, but I, I think mostly for me, just the the vision of evil Dale Cooper that we get at the end. Mm-hmm is just, like, is such a tease. <laughs> such a fantastic tease. It's pretty great. And I, I guess since we're talking about endings, we should talk about Firewalk with me. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. So, can I just say, I actually really like Firewalk with me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I guess it's my turn to be excoriated. You um, did not. Well, okay, there, there are a couple good seeds. And, I mean, anything that gives us the, that sequence with Bowie, I think is worthwhile, but yeah, it's not good. I mean, yeah, the, Simon. Th- the thing about Firewalk, okay, in my defense, 
Fire Walk With Me is not a good finale. I mean, it's it's clearly more, it's like at least 85% prologue and maybe 15% epilogue, mm-hmm. or maybe even less. But a- as something that ties into the show, it's not very good. It doesn't so it doesn't really tell us anything we didn't already know or couldn't figure out. And it's, you know, the pacing is strange. And it was actually originally intended, I mean, Lynch shot some ridiculous amount of footage, like, I mean, that that could actually even use like five hours mm-hmm. or something. Uh, many actors were called up and then just not included. Uh, it, it was it was a huge mess. Like it was supposed to be a series of films. It was supposed to be a, diff- a bunch of different things that never panned out. So it's just kind of a slapdash mess. But it's a lot of fun on its own. I mean, just the whole first half hour with Bowie with Bowie and Chris Isaac mm-hmm. just kind of makes you want a sequel series with them that you'll never get. And uh, there's a lot of really, really crazy, intense, scary sequences that Lynch would, wouldn't would have been able to get away with on the show. Although, I should mention that he gets away with a lot uh, on the show, particularly what happens to uh, to um, Laura's cousin is quite brutal. Yeah, Maddie. But, uh, yeah, Maddie. But, I don't know, I have a strange fondness for the movie, just because I, I think it works fairly well as a Lynch movie, if not as a tie-in to the show. Well, for me, if we're going to talk about a Lynch movie, we should mention Mulholland Drive. Yes. I only saw Mulholland Drive, like, this year. Yeah, well, that that makes all of us, actually. Well, you like the Twin Peaks movie, so you lose. <laughs> for those who don't know, that, that movie was originally going to be a pilot for, I think, an ABC show, right? Yeah, it's essentially ABC commissioned Mulholland Drive as a pilot in 1999, and Lynch, yeah, Lynch, and so... About, I, I don't want to give a fraction. I'm going to say three quarters of what you see in Mulholland Drive is actually from the mm-hmm. pilot. And then uh, a couple, uh, then a, a year or two later, a French production company gave him a bunch more money to do, to shoot more footage and finish it as a film. So uh, you can actually, if you're very, if you're very diligent, you can actually find the original pilot online. And if you're not that diligent, you can still watch the ending on YouTube. And just as an exercise, go find the ending on YouTube and watch the last minute at least, and then just imagine the house lights coming on and ABC executives trying to figure out what the hell they were going to do with that. <laughs> well, I remember seeing, because when you came to Chicago this time, and that was one of the things we uh, got to go do. We, it was showing at the Siskel, and it was the first time I had seen um, a Lynch movie other than I had seen Fire Walk With Me. Um, but you can really see uh, in that film, you know, his. The, there are so many parallels to Twin Peaks, and there are also ways that he's clearly playing with the audience's expectations somewhat uh, with the use of the the same actor who is in t- Twin Peaks as the man from another place. Uh, and, uh, you know, in certain things, but it's, it's also you can really see his aesthetic. And, you know, I guess I, I would be surprised if we saw Lynch come back to TV, but I really wish he would. Yeah, I mean, he. I, I would I would be happy just to have him come back to filmmaking. I mean, he's... He, after Inland Empire, he's retreated to the land of just making music, which is, you know, fun and all, but come on, dude. <laughs> but let's go back to talking about uh, Twin Peaks. We haven't talked about The the Lodge, um, and I feel like we should because yeah. it's so freaking cool. It is. Yeah, is, is there a moment in The Black Lodge that isn't just the coolest thing ever? I can't think I of one. I don't think there is. <laughs> no. I wonder how it stacks up as a set. Like, I mean, it, like, I don't know if you guys have ever just, this is such a random example, but um, the house 
that Rocky Horror Picture Show is supposed to take place in, somebody tried to, like, deconstruct it as a, as a floor plan. And it doesn't work. It's right. not a real place. Like, there's nothing right. that yeah. could possibly function in that house. I'm just curious if the lodge, like, how it functions, mm-hmm. you know? Like, what does it actually I, look like? I, I just sort of picture the lodge as just um, a loft the size of an aircraft hangar. Yeah. That, that just has, you know, that has never-ending curtains, no hallways. I don't know. Are there doors in the Black Lodge? I don't remember any. Uh, I just remember lots red of curtains. curtains that red curtains that imps carry around and and you know they shuffle around the furniture like that like that Jumiroquai video when you're not looking they just move stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's how it works. Well, just the you know I think it does such a great job of capturing the that dream sort of feel and and just the technique of having everyone say their lines phonetically backwards and then reversing it just gets slightly off and slightly weird. Uh, it's just so incredibly effective. Yeah, which was a technique explicitly repeated on Lost, but but not nearly as creepy, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I mean, it's definitely I think one of the most iconic elements of this of the series. And uh, every now and again, I'll see red curtains on a TV show like Buffy's uh, season four finale, and I will instantly go to the the Black Lodge. So it's uh, clearly mm-hmm, effectively done. However, we are getting to the end of our time. So are there any final uh, thoughts that you guys want to share, Lindsay? Um, I get really upset when I watch this TV show with people that don't get it. I've tried to, like, introduce a few people to this mm-hmm. show and, friend, like, you know, and, I, and I, I understand why. Like, we were talking about this when we first started this whole discussion. And um, I do understand how some people are like, this is either going to be terrible or I'm going to love it. The people that think it's terrible aren't really, like, my close friends anymore. I might have taken them off my speed dial, lost their phone numbers, and haven't talked to them since. Just how I feel about this show. Well, and at least I'm curious about what you guys think about this. I've, I have a hard time predicting what people are going to like this show, which people are going to like this yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't uh, – it's not necessarily where yeah, I would like, connect the dots. <laughs> I don't know. I, to, to, me, to me, it's a great litmus test. If you can't get behind Twin Peaks after watching at least, I don't know, seven hours of it, um, we're probably not going to be friends. I just – that's – I don't know. I don't know anyone – who's even remotely personable or interesting who doesn't like Twin Peaks, who's seen it. Um, as, as for sort of last comments, I don't know. I, I wish people who claim Twin Peaks as, as an influence should rewatch it and wonder if there aren't more lessons to be taken from it. Because I, I given that Lynch probably isn't going to return to TV ever, uh, at least not successfully, uh, I, I would like to see people sort of trying to trying to extract some of what made it special and sort of do new things with that. We saw a glimmer of that with the Away finale, but that's so rare. And, I mean, that was on a show that was already canceled, so that should tell you something. Yeah. With all the amazing programming that we have currently, uh, particularly on Sunday nights, uh, particularly on pay cable, yeah, I, I would really like to see HBO or Showtime or IFC or one of these other more niche, uh, more niche channels Take a take a chance on a show like this or, or a creator like this, and to, to really experiment. Because I mean, that's that's what uh, so much of this ser- this series is to me. It's just I, I, they can't have known that all of this was gonna work because a lot of it doesn't. If I'm honest, I think James is a prime example. But just the you know finding someone with a vision, an interesting you know uh, idea, and uh, Way, an interesting way of looking at the world and letting them play. I think, I think that we've seen a lot of success uh, with with Louis 
in, you know, in, in that vein. And I, and I think it's about time we got some more experimental visual, uh, visually experimental, that is, and uh, fantastical sort of surreal kind of programming. So I, that's a long way of saying that I agree with you, Simon. Yes. Uh, since we're claiming uh, also, since you mentioned Sunday night, should mention that to me the shows that ha- that I think have best emulated that uh, that sort of influence are the already mentioned Veronica Mars and Mad Men, mm. I think, in a lot of ways when it goes on strange tangents and by association The Sopranos, yeah. thanks to Matthew Weiner's involvement, uh, clear influences there in different sorts of ways. Yeah. So I guess my final thing would be if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Twin Peaks, you should check it out and stick with it through the whole pilot. Wait till you know, don't give up before Dale Cooper shows up. And maybe it won't be for you, but if if it is, I think you'll you'll love it. And it's definitely I mean, I think it's worthwhile viewing for anybody who's a you know, more hardcore fan of T V just for its role in the, the you know, the the transformation of the genre you know, over the years, you know, for like we were saying at the very beginning, like Lindsay were saying at the very beginning, it's its role in the development of what TV could be. Um, but it's also a hell of a lot of fun. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find you online? Thanks for having me, guys. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at Lindsay Wu, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-Wu, or you can check out my blog, uh, whatsyourglitch.blogspot.com. Good times. And you're also on the Doctor Who podcast. So. There's that thing too. Yeah, we started off that way. Yeah, I also I also really like Doctor Who, uh, and I talk about that with some dudes. But right now it's in the off season, so I feel we're promoting a podcast that's not as active in its current state. You know, well, well yeah, you know, people will be listening to this in 2013, and it'll be 50th anniversary fever, and they can check you out then. Fact. <laughs> And all or, of those or things by then, to each other. So, or by then, people will just have gotten over the whole Doctor Who thing, and we can all live our lives as though that. Oh, that's happened. adorable. You know, keep hoping people are just going to get over you, but you're still here. So, oh, you know, don't hate on the Who. Snap. Snap. All right. So, <laughs> with that, thank you for joining us. <laughs> uh, I, hopefully, you guys, uh, anybody listening. Uh, well, let us know what you think about Twi- Twin Peaks. Let me know if you, uh, you know, feel free to send me some hate mail about my terrible taste in synths. Or, uh, you know, if you want to support my position, my shaky on the ledge position about the Twin Peaks music, uh, you can you can uh, get in touch with Simon and I uh, on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. You are? I'm at Sucker Howell. We have, uh, the, this will be up at sunnetsite.org, and we're also up on Current. If you want to stream the show, you can also find it in iTunes. We have an M4A and an MP3 feed there. You can email us, the tw- uh, televerse at gmail.com. And uh, the intro and outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. And I believe that, that seems like that's enough. Simon, what do you think? Yep. We Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. <laughs>